I'm not sure how you get in front of the people you get in front of for your podcast, but it's the same kind of deal. The first thing you have to do is get them to kind of see who you are. Jim Munchback is the Social Business Authority. We're going to talk about the Social Business Authority. He's also a State Farm agent in Houston, Texas. He's an author of two really cool books. One of them is What Matters Most, and the other one is I Make Your Money Count. And we're going to talk about those as well, because you have some unbelievable endorsements for that book, Jim. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, Jared. Thank you for having me. It's the highlight of my day, week, month, and maybe even 2014. Even if you don't mean that, I appreciate you saying it. So, Jim, as always, what's the best concert that you have ever been to? The best concert I ever went to was in Springfield, Missouri at the Hammond Student Center. It was Willie Nelson. And the reason it was my favorite concert of all time is because at the time I was going to a place called Baptist Bible College, which if you got caught going to a concert, you were like kicked out of school. It was like Bob Jones University. It was serious business. Willie Nelson was going to perform at the Hammond Student Center and the head of our security at the college, he had a moonlighting job and he was kind of talking smack about how he'd be working the concert and none of us students could go because it was like totally against the rules. So I snuck into that conference because I knew the Hammond Student Center inside out. I knew the security entrances and so on. So I went to the concert, never bought a ticket, listened to Willie Nelson. He started out with Whiskey River, Take My Mind. Great song. And then I went up to the head of security and just said, hey, dude, I just wanted you to know I was here. Hope you have a great night. See you later. Bye. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So did you get kicked out of your college? No, he couldn't. I was like, dude, seriously, you were at the same conference same whatever it was, concert I was, how are you going to talk? He was like, he knew it was kind of like, not really good. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Now, Jim, there's a reason why I've had you, or I've asked you to be on the show today. And there might be some people out there who listen to the show and be like, I don't know who Jim Munchback is. And that's okay. But they're going to. And I, I believe that's going to be true because you are working on a lot of very interesting things and you have made a ton of interesting connections in the last year. But it hasn't, you know, blown up overnight for you. I mean, these are things that you've been working at steadily. So, Jim, let's first of all, let's go back a little bit. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you have a really amazing story about how you had to overcome some serious self-doubt. Back in the day, you were let go from a job. And there's listeners right now who that will resonate with. They've been through that or... Uh, They know people who are going through that. Can we talk about your situation where you got let go back in the day? You bet. We can talk about that, but I'm going to tell you it can be sometimes emotional for me because it was a very, very scary time for me with two young sons at home and a wife. And then, boom, I was unemployed. I'd never really been unemployed uh, much, but the real deal. So you bet. We can talk about it. I'll tell you anything you want to know. All right, let's just start there. Okay, so you find out you're let go. What's going through your mind? What happens? You're you're a family man. You got responsibilities. And when was this, by the way? This would have been 1989. Okay. And in 1989, I worked for Sears. I was an auto mechanic. I was a commission auto mechanic. And 
Sears was a great place to work back then, especially if you were a commission salesperson, which is what I was as a mechanic. But one day I pulled a Cadillac into the garage and I was a brake specialist. I was a master mechanic, but mostly what I did was brakes. And this Cadillac, the ticket said, bad brakes, exclamation mark. So I took it for a long drive. I was in Austin at the time at the Barton Creek Mall. So I took it, took the car for a good test drive and the brakes just worked perfectly until I pulled into the shop. And as soon as I pulled over the little hump on the lift to raise the car, the brake pedal went to the floor and it wouldn't come up off the floor. And I panicked. I hit the brake. It did nothing. Hit the emergency brake. It did nothing. Put it in park. It did nothing. It just continued to roll right into the brake lathe, did about $800 damage to the vehicle. And the store manager at Sears called me in his office and he said, Jim, there could have been a person standing at that lathe and you could have injured them or killed them. And we just can't accept that kind of exposure. You're fired. And I'd never had an accident before, but I think they knew that I was trying to get a job with Allstate. I wanted to be an adjuster, an insurance adjuster. And at the time, Allstate owned Sears or Sears owned Allstate, I guess. And so they knew that I was trying to get a job in a different field. And I was a full-time employee with lots of benefits and I made a lot of money and they were, I think, you know, looking for a good opportunity to eliminate some of that fixed cost. And so I gave them that opportunity and I was, those kinds of jobs were very difficult to get in my industry And I'd worked a long time to get that job. And it was very scary because I was a young man with, I had this great income and all these benefits. And then boom, I was unemployed with a wife and two kids. And that's when the difficult challenges that that came from, like you said, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of discouragement and even depression. Was your wife working? She was a teacher. My wife teaches, bless her heart, Connie. Have you met Connie? <laughs> you know, I've been to your home and I have never met yeah, Connie. You gotta I'm be, embarrassed to admit, You would so. love Connie. Rachel and Connie would be like best buddies. But Connie's a teacher and she's always been a teacher and she teaches in Christian, you know, small schools. She doesn't make very much money even now, but she loves what she does. And at the time she did work, but it wasn't enough money to support us. That's for sure. So you have these responsibilities and this horrible accident, which you probably couldn't have done anything to stop, has happened. And now what? What do you do, Jim? How does that, (laughs) where do you go from there? Well, you do basically, for the first time in my life, I applied for unemployment benefits. At the time, unemployment benefits would last for six months. There was no provision for any extension like there is today. But that was the first thing I did. I was scared enough and needed to provide for my family. So I went and applied for unemployment. And since I had a full-time job with Sears, they were responsible for paying some benefits. It wasn't nearly enough to provide the standard of living we're used to, but it did help. And so that's what I did. And then I had just started looking for a job. You know, there just weren't any jobs, anything like what I had. It was the best job, literally, as far as automotive the field that I was in, I had in the top 10 best jobs in Austin at the time. Wow. So how long were you on unemployment? That's kind of the interesting part of the story to me in terms of 
you never know how God is going to provide. You never know how your effort, you doing the things that you know you should do, you never know when they're going to pay off or when it's going to happen. But my unemployment ended on the same day that I basically started working for State Farm Insurance. And the story leading up to that was it involved a whole lot of interviews and jobs that weren't anything like what I had, anything that I could even accept. I found lots of jobs as an auto mechanic, but many of them didn't even offer workers comp, which meant imagine if you're working on a pulling a transmission out of a car and you lose a finger and you can't work and they don't even offer workers compensation. I mean, it was those kind of jobs that I was offered over and over and I just couldn't accept that. So I continued to look for a job for the full six months and I went to State Farm and I had been applying at Allstate. And Allstate, it never worked out, but I was also applying for an adjuster's job at State Farm. And I had done that over the six months and never heard anything from State Farm. So I went up and talked to the HR guy and I told him, look, I really am interested in working for State Farm. Is there anything in the entire state of Texas? Because at that point I was willing to relocate from Austin. And in Austin, in fact, everybody wanted the jobs at State Farm in Austin because if someone is an executive in Indiana or Illinois and their son or daughter wants to work for State Farm, they would just send them to Austin because everybody wanted to be in Austin. And so it was difficult for an outsider like myself to get a job with State Farm in Austin. So the HR guy said, well, if you're willing to go to Houston, which I considered to be the armpit of the United States, <laughs> I, I was not really eager to go to Houston, but I needed a job. So they said, if you're willing to go to Houston, you can interview there. Well, the deal with State Farm is you never get the job offered. They never offer you a job at the interview. I was told it's a long process. So I continued to look for other jobs and I actually got a job with UPS and I was supposed to start on a Monday and I got this call from HR from State Farm and they said, you interview on Tuesday. And it was the day after I was supposed to start it at UPS and I'd already taken the driving test at UPS. I was in and it was a part-time job and you work through the holidays. This was in, I guess it was October of 1989. And so at UPS, it wasn't like a full-time kind of job, but by then my unemployment was about to be over and I was willing to take, it paid really well. It just wasn't, didn't include benefits. You had to hope that you would get on full-time. So there was some risk up front, but again, it was the best deal I had and I needed the money. So I was thrilled with the opportunity, but then I get a call to interview with State Farm. And so here's where it got a little tricky. My friend at State Farm who helped me, who really turned me on to the position as a fire claims adjuster, he said, Jim, just call in sick on Monday and go to the interview with State Farm. You can't miss this opportunity to interview for State Farm. This is a full-time job with benefits, with an amazing career opportunity. And he was right, but I just didn't feel good about, these people were offering me a job. I didn't feel good about telling them I was sick. I just, that's, I've never done that. It just didn't seem right. So what I did was I called the HR, it was a man, I can't remember his name, but he was a real nice guy at UPS, I told him, look, I've been trying to get a job with State Farm for a long time. And finally, I have an interview in Houston. 
And this job would be a full-time job as an adjuster. It would be a total change in career for me. And I just feel like I owe it to my family to go to the interview. But my predicament is you guys have offered me this job and I'm supposed to start Monday and the interview at State Farm is on Tuesday. What would you suggest I do? And this man, he said, Jim, and I was, you got to understand, I was at the last week of unemployment benefits and I was scared And I needed a job and I had a job, but the career that I really wanted seemed like it was very possible. And so I had to just tell him the truth. And he said, Jim, we want people like you who have integrity and we would love to have you work for UPS. Go to the interview. We wish you the best. If you don't get the job, you can start here a week from Monday. And I was like, wow, that was so generous. I was so thankful for that. But then I went to the interview at State Farm and Deborah Vasey, who was a divisional claim superintendent, I told her my story. She wanted to know, what have you done? You know, who are you? And I had to actually borrow dress shoes and a suit to go to this interview. And I was not a white collar kind of guy. I mean, I was an auto mechanic, but I told her my story. You know, I did a paper route when I was a kid. I've been a commission auto mechanic. And then I told her about UPS. And I told her I really want to work for State Farm. And I have this friend who really loves his job. And I've never had a job that I really loved, but I think I could really love this job. And I told her the story about UPS and that I called them and explained and that I was supposed to start yesterday, but I really want a career. And at the end of the interview, Deborah Vasey stood up, extended her hand and said, I want to offer you this position contingent on your background investigation. When I told my friend Vance Miller, who was the superintendent in fire claims, who was my buddy, he was my fishing buddy, and he's the guy that got me interested in State Farm and the role as a fire claims adjuster. When I told him what happened in the interview, he said, no way, State Farm never offers a position in the first interview. But they did for me and I got the job. I was part of the very first training center in the Houston area. We hired a bunch of fire claims adjusters and set up a training unit. And so I got the most unbelievable kind of training for a rookie in fire claims in the history of State Farm. And they didn't do that for very long, but I was one in the first group and it propelled my career with State Farm in a way that I never could have appreciated at the time. Today, I'm an agent in Houston, Texas, and anyone who knows anything about this industry or this company knows that to be an agent with State Farm is hands down the best position in the company. And that's my story. And it was it went from, I guess, rags, kind of shop towels anyway, to almost riches. I mean, I make way more money today than I ever dreamed I would ever make. And when I think back to that story, Jared, and I remember how scared I was and how hopeless things seemed, whenever I get to talk to someone else who's going through that, it's kind of hard to remember, but it's also one of those things that if you keep at it, if you do the right thing, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. going to ask that. What's the encouragement that you offer to the listener who's going through something difficult right now? Maybe they've lost their job or maybe they're just in a challenging situation. Well, I think for everyone, if we sit back and look at what our assets are, what we have to bring to the marketplace, 
it's hard to believe in yourself. It's hard to not doubt when the chips are down. But the reality is there's an incredible opportunity always in the marketplace. But the opportunity goes to the person who's willing to get up, show up, speak up, and kind of deliver from hard work, things that other people may not be willing to deliver. And that's what's always worked for me is it's not the easy thing, but it's the simple little things that you can do that will put you in a position to get the job that you really couldn't even possibly be considered for if you didn't do the little things that grew the muscle that prepared you for the bigger thing. Wow. So, Jim, you've gone on to have success, obviously, in your career with State Farm. You also are a professor at the University of Houston at the Bauer College of Business. And in addition to that, you've written a couple books. I really want to bring this up because I think it's amazing. Uh, I don't know that you would consider yourself the strongest writer or the best author out there, but you've created and written two books. And both of those books have had just unbelievable endorsements. I mean, we're talking big, big names. Would you be willing to share some of the endorsements you've had for your book? Sure. I don't actually have one in front of me, which is a terrible <laughs> thing to say. But I can tell you this, the late Dr. Stephen Covey, when he endorsed Make Your Money Count, the title of the book is Make Your Money Count, the website that I have that's kind of a corollary to my training at the Bauer College of Business is imakeyourmoneycount.com because another lady who is also a certified financial planner had makeyourmoneycount.com. But the book, Make Your Money Count, the subtitle is Connecting Your Resources to What Matters Most. And so the book is really about taking your core values and your purpose and really clarifying and discovering what matters most to you. As a certified financial planner, if I know that, if I know what matters most to you, then I can use my skills and the process of financial planning to create a really relevant, powerful plan with you. And so that's what the book is about. And when Dr. Covey took a look at it, and also Ken Blanchard in San Diego, when these two men took a look at the book, they recognized there was something special, something different about the principles and the process that were outlined in the book. And so they agreed to give their endorsement. And I was, you know, you're right. I hired a professional writer. His name is Pat Springle of Baxter Press, a good friend of mine. And we spent almost two years talking about the principles and the process in Make Your Money Count because Pat is not a financial guy, but he's a gifted writer. He's a brilliant writer, but he had to take my ideas and my words and put them, assemble them into a book. And so he's gifted at that. That's what he does. The book came out way better than I ever dreamed. And the endorsements that we got were a testament to that. Oh, no, totally. And I think there's a good takeaway there, Jim, is, is you knew, okay, this writing thing may not be my complete strength, but I can uh, reach out to someone and have someone potentially help me with that. And I think if people will listen to your advice there and realize, hey, you can always get advice or you can always uh, maybe get some help from someone who's a little bit stronger in a certain area, that's something you should do. That's just being smart. I hope that people will consider that. I appreciate that. And I would just say, just as kind of a piece of technical advice, you have to decide as an author if if you're going to put your name on the book as an author, which is what I did, but then you have to decide, you know, are you going to attribute the work to 
like for instance, a lot of people hire ghostwriters, which right, is what right. I did. But the difference between a ghostwriter and having that person's name on the book, which is what I did with Pat Springle. If you look at the cover of my book, Make Your Money Count by Jim Munchback with Patrick Springle. And to me, that made sense because I am not a gifted writer. If I would have written Make Your Money Count on my own, it would have been a thousand pages and nobody <laughs> would have read it. So that's just the reality. And so, you know, it did cost some money. Pat is not cheap, but I believed in the principles and the process and I wanted to communicate those in the most clear way possible. And so hiring a professional in that situation makes all the sense in the world to me. I just think it's impressive, Jim, that here you are, you've got all this experience, you connect with someone talented like Pat, and then all of a sudden you have two books out there that are really good books and they've been endorsed by just world-renowned people like <laughs> like Blanchard and Dr. Stephen Covey. Is it? That's pretty amazing. So how in the world does someone who's a new author try to get a big name to endorse their book? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked me that question, Jared, because... I've thought about this many times as I look at Starve the Doubts and I listen to the interviews that you get. And I know nobody knows who Jim Munchback is. And that's cool. I'm okay with that. Yet. (laughs) You get some amazing interviews. And the way you get those interviews is exactly the way that I got these endorsements. You believe in what you're doing. And when you show up and you ask someone to help you do what you're doing for the purpose that you're doing it, they're happy to help. And that's the way it was with Dr. Covey and Ken Blanchard and John Ortberg and Ron Blue. And the list goes on and on of people who were willing to put their name on my book to endorse it because they knew that I believed in what this book was about and how it would help people in the area of managing money, life, and relationships. Okay, so let's just talk about that for a minute. So for someone who's writing a new book and they want to potentially have uh, someone with a, a great reputation who's out there to endorse their book, what step could they take to to try to make that happen? Well, I think first of all, just I'm not sure how you get in front of the people you get in front of for your podcast, but it's the same kind of deal. The first thing you have to do is get them to kind of see who you are. Because Dr. Covey did not know me, Ken Blanchard did not know me, Ron Blue, John Ortberg. These were men who and some ladies as well, but they didn't know me. So the first step is you have to become known to them in some way. And that's a little tricky. You know, I'm not sure there's an easy, simple answer. I can tell you what I did in each case, but that's the first step is to get them to Seth Godin, who we all know and love and his marketing is brilliant. He talks about this little, you write a memo, you call the person in the mailroom, get his name. And then the people at the company that you want to get their attention, you send a memo with like five different people's name asking for a 20 minute meeting. And then you send that to the guy in the mailroom and ask him to distribute it. And when those leaders see this memo with all four names or all five names, they have to respond to it. And so I did things like that. I tried a lot of different things just to get my manuscript in front of these people who I knew had endorsed good books and I understood what they believed in. And another thing I did was I made sure that I mentioned them in the manuscript, in the book. I mentioned something that I believed that they had done that resonated with the main idea of my book, Make Your Money Count. 
And that was easy with Ken Blanchard, Ron Blue, and uh, Dr. Covey. And so when I did that, then I made sure that was on the very top and that I kind of asked permission to share some of their story in my book. And that helped me get their attention so that they would be able to consider endorsing the book, which meant (laughs) reading the manuscript. So you might call that manipulation. (laughs) No, I don't. I I think that's being smart. And some people that might be intuitive, but for others who are aspiring authors, if you don't know that, that's really good advice. So I hope that you wrote that down and made a note of that. (laughs) Hey, Jim, we only got a few more minutes left. And I I really want to tackle one more thing with you. And that's this whole concept of new media and podcasting and social media presence. And that's daunting. You've had success with State Farm and you've written some books and you've done some big things, but this is a whole new animal that now you're immersing yourself in and you're making a really good effort to try to connect and stuff. But on some level, is this like starving the doubts for you all over again? Absolutely. The difference is for me, There's this world of generous people. Like one thing I've learned along my life's journey is that people want to help. From the time I was a little kid and I needed money to buy tennis shoes and I knocked on your door and asked you to let me shovel your snow for money because I needed to buy new tennis shoes, people love to help people. And so in our community, in our online social media community, new media, whatever you want to call it, It is filled with people who are very generous. I have a list of 100 people, and I got this idea from you because I learn from everyone. And guys like you, Jared, teach guys like me little things that become kind of part of the fabric of how we're going to do business. Mm. And so you've taught me so many things, and one of them is just kind of how to try to share more about other people. I think it's the same principle as what I did to get these endorsements with my books by including one of these great men and one of the epic things they did that I appreciated in my book. They were happy then to endorse my book. And so it seems like that's the same thing that can drive social business, which is what I'm interested in, social business. I'm not the authority, but I have a lot of people I've surrounded myself with who are genuine, authentic, generous people like yourself and Michael Stelzner and Cliff Ravenscraft and Rob Greenlee. And man, the list goes on and on. Chris Brogan. I have a hundred of these people on my list, literally. In fact, one of the things that I'm doing in that whole context, I wrote, I hired someone, a Wikipedian, to create a page on Wikipedia for Michael Stelzner. Now, we're not done with it yet. I haven't even told him, but he has helped me so much that that's the kind of thing I want to do at the Social Business Authority. I am not the authority. I'm just surrounding myself with people who are. Wow. Well, Jim, I could say I was fortunate to meet you this past year at the SCORE conference, and then you and I have run into each other at several conferences thereafter. And you have always been very generous to me. Your attitude is to serve others first. And sometimes you come across overly serving, and some people aren't sure how to process that. But Jim, I got to tell you, man, you're a good friend to me now, and I look forward to doing social business with you for many years to come. And just grateful that you'd be on Starve the Doubts. What's the best place for the listener to find out more about what you're working on? I'd say social socialbusinessauthority.com. I am trying to transition all of my content and everything I do through that platform, which is the Get Notice platform. I'm having to learn it, but that's where you'll see and be able to keep up with me the most. Cool. 
And lastly, Jim, I wanted to share, you're doing a podcast. It's a daily podcast. And this podcast has had a reach around the entire world. It's actually been replayed on the radio in other countries. Would you be willing just to share real quick about what you're doing? Yeah, the Blue Books, it's bluebookstudy.com. We have a Facebook okay. page too. And if you want to affirm us, just like our page at it's Blue Books Study on Facebook. But basically there's this book, it's blue and it doesn't even have a title. And it's an amazing book that my wife and I discovered because a friend suggested it. And the book went out of print for a while. And the man who put it together, who doesn't even want to be named, gave me permission to take that content and turn it into a daily devotional podcast. And so we're working with a team in the Philippines who helps us produce it. It's a daily podcast. Some of our friends have helped contribute the voice, voiceovers, but it's just been a wonderful resource for a lot of people. I wanted personally to have a daily devotion that could be consumed when I take my daily walk. And so the tagline is for your daily walk, bluebookstudy.com. It's like no other podcast in the iTunes store. Well, that podcast has had a lot of success for you in terms of worldwide reach. So congratulations on that. Jim, again, I'm grateful for your time and grateful for you sharing your story of how you overcome self-doubt to accomplish some really cool stuff. And I know that's (laughs) encouraging to me and, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will enjoy hearing that and and hopefully reaching out to you on Twitter. Hey, thank you so much. By the way, Twitter is at Jim Munchback with an H on the end. But Jared, thank you so much for thinking of me. It's a real privilege and honor to be on Starve the Doubts. And and if I can ever do anything for you, bro, you know how to reach me. (laughs) Thanks again, Jim. Take care, Jared. want to help. From the time I was a little kid and I needed money to buy tennis shoes and I knocked on your door and asked you to let me shovel your snow for money because I needed to buy new tennis shoes, people love to help people. And so in our community, in our online social media community, new media, whatever you want to call it, it is filled with people who are very generous. 